Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 143, and we're going to talk about which things you should spend money on and which things you shouldn't. That is, things that are worth getting the brand name for and things it's okay to cheap out on. We're also going to talk about fake lagoon table legs. <laughs> I'll explain. A place to visit that involves you driving on water and a resource recommendation on how to deal with very snowy roads. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for being here with me. Before we get started, I've got a number of business items to attend to, and I'm just going to go right with that and talk about uh, Gabby Petito. I don't like talking about Gabby Petito. If you're not familiar with that name, Gabby Petito was a young woman who was living the van life with her boyfriend, and a lot of stuff happened, and they both ended up dead. It was all over the news a couple of years ago. Somebody asked that I mention that there was a TV movie made of the story, and here I am mentioning it. <laughs> there is a documentary, and there is a, an actual TV movie that was acted out. You can find them if you search them. The name of the movie is The Gabby Petito Story. I'm not a big fan of promoting this because I feel like this story gets associated with van life and, and actually really isn't. There was a van involved, but what happened could have happened in an apartment just as easily, and, well, sadly it does. So consider it mentioned, and I do appreciate the suggestion, but I'm not thrilled with this entire story. Second, uh, a gentleman by the name of Bob on our Facebook group mentioned that I have warned you guys, warned you, to not buy a Sprinter, to not buy a vehicle that uses diesel, and to definitely not buy a used ambulance. And I, of course, did all three, and while well, he was just reminding me that I'm now paying the consequences for not following my own advice, and all I can say is, yup. Because, you know, advice is like, it's just suggestions, and there are times when you should ignore it. And, well, in my situation, in my circumstances, and based on what I wanted, I chose to ignore all my own good advice. And, well, yes, I am paying the price for it. That said, I'm still going to recommend that you avoid diesel, and that you avoid NCV3 sprinters, which are the ones made from 2008 to 2016. And, uh, yeah, used ambulances, boy, definitely know what you're getting into with there, because they have a lot of cool stuff, but uh, they have a lot of needs. They're very needy. Next, uh, a couple weeks ago, I mentioned that I was in an episode of Playboy, which is less titillating than you might imagine. Uh, it was just a letter to the editor. It was no big deal. But somebody actually found the article. Uh, a user by the name of Flack in our Discord channel found the article and sent me a PDF of it. Uh, not even an article. It was a letter to the editor. But that helped me remember what it was. So if you were curious about what the topic of the letter was, because I couldn't remember it when I told the story, it was actually about 2012. Everyone remember that 10 years ago, the world was going to end on October 12th, 2012? Does everyone remember that? No? Good, because it didn't happen, and it never was going to happen, and that was what my letter was about. And, uh, yeah, you know, a lot of these dates come and go, and uh, should one of these dates ever be right, I guess we're just not even going to know about it. Lastly... In a couple of weeks, I am heading down to South America and Antarctica, and that trip is going to take me three weeks, and I am going to be away for three podcast episodes. 
I have set up a poll in our Facebook group because I want you guys to tell me what to do. I see it as three options, and I'm open to a fourth or fifth if you have that idea. Number one, because I'm going to be in South America and Antarctica, I should produce podcasts dedicated to my trip down there. It wouldn't be so much about van life because, well, there aren't very many vans in Antarctica. There are some, but I'm not going to get to see them. And, you know, maybe that's be interesting. I mean, it's not directly related to van life, but we're all adventurers and explorers to some extent. So maybe that would be interesting to you guys. Let me know if that's what you would like. Another option is I just do three regular episodes and put them in the can and have them launch on time time. They won't be up to date in any way because I will be recording them weeks ahead of time, but you guys listening probably won't even notice the difference. The third is that I just take three weeks off and don't worry about it. (laughs) I am genuinely curious as to what you would like me to do. So yeah, there's two ways you can tell me. One is to get into our Facebook group, which is built to go a Facebook group. It's an auto join. You can get in with no problem and then fill out the poll that's sitting there. Or you can just drop me a line at jeff at builtago.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And I will say thank you, and I will do what you guys say. Right now, the poll is leaning towards me doing Antarctica podcasts, although taking three weeks off is creeping up. Uh, I'll, be, I'll tell you the truth, I'm probably not going to take three weeks off. <laughs> so, so we'll see. But anyway, let me know what you would like to do. Okay, now on to the main topic of this show. Um, I believe in the concept of value. That is, you want to spend money up and to the point you get the most value out of something. So you can spend $50,000 on a car and get value for that $50,000, or you can spend $500,000 for a car. Now, a $500,000 car is 10 times more expensive than a $50,000 car, but is it 10 times more value? Well, from a practical point of view, no, it isn't. From an investment point of view, maybe. We're not talking about investments here. We're just talking about practical use. So I would never buy the $500,000 car. I would get the $50,000 car. But I could also get a $5,000 car. Now, would that be a better value? Mm, Maybe not. It depends on what the car was. A $5,000 car is likely going to be much older. It's going to have problems. It's going to need repairs, and it may be a lot less reliable. So I'm always trying to find the middle point there of where is the value. And in van life, we encounter this in a number of areas where you're going to get the purists, the people who are trying to build the best possible thing, saying that you have to spend the most money on all this stuff or your van's going to explode. Oh, And then you're going to have the other side of thing where you're like, dude, I got the van and I found some cardboard boxes and tossed them in the back and I found this old can and I make my coffee in that and I am living the life. So maybe we can find some balance between these things. Now, this is all just my opinion. I have different opinions from you. So take everything I say with a grain of salt, know where I'm coming from and don't be afraid to say, "Uh, no, Jeff, that's just stupid. And I'm okay with that. So here are my thoughts on this though. I'll start with things you shouldn't be cheap on. All right, number one, batteries. I think you need to spend some more money on batteries than maybe you want to. And I say this because I've, I've gone through this myself. So batteries are one of the more expensive components of your rig, but they're also one of the most important. And it depends on what kind of camping you're going to do. If you're always going to be plugged in, batteries are less important. If you're going to be off the grid for two weeks at a time, batteries are super important. So I would recommend you spend more money on batteries. And which kind of batteries. 
I would definitely say it is time to invest in lithium. Avoid the AGM and the lead acid. Sure, if you have just the tightest budget in the world and you need a lot of capacity, the 6-volt lead acid golf cart batteries in series do provide the best quote-unquote bang for the buck. But they don't have the longevity, they require maintenance, and they're heavy. So yeah, batteries, I definitely think it's time to go lithium. As to what brand of lithium... I've got two lithium batteries now. I've got an Ampere Time, which is considered a relatively cheap battery, and I've got a Renogy, which is a relatively good brand name battery. So yeah, the performance has been about the same. Um, I have a problem with the C rate, which is the a rate, the amount of power that can be given out at one time from the battery on the Ampere Time that I do not have on the Renogy. But for folks who are just running lights and maybe a fan, that isn't going to matter at all. So... Don't get the cheapest possible battery. Get the optimal battery. That's my advice. Another thing, and this might strike you as odd, is cookware. Get a decent pot and frying pan. You know, you're in a van. You don't have to have the nice little tightly compact hiker's cook kit. You, you don't have to have that. You can actually have a home frying pan in your van. You probably have space for that. So I'm not telling you to go out and spend $600 on cookware, but get some halfway decent stuff. Don't get all the little tiny compact stuff that's fiddly. And don't go crazy buying the titanium stuff either. Get yourself like a $20 frying pan and maybe a $10 pot and also a nice knife and fork. I have been using garbage cutlery <laughs> for years in my van. And one day I'm just sitting there like, why am I using this? I mean, I've got an all-in-one knife-fork-spoon combo that's very nifty, but it cuts the corners of my mouth when I use it. And then I bought some really, really cheap, like, 50-cent spoons, and they rust. Why am I putting up with this? Heck, I could go to any Goodwill or Salvation Army in the country and just buy halfway decent silverware for just a couple of dollars, and it's going to make my meal so much better. So, yeah, get a decent set of cutlery and in a nice mug. Just get yourself a nice mug. It does not have to be a $100 titanium mug like I saw at REI the other day. But get yourself a comfy mug and go ahead and make it ceramic. Get two. It'll break. It's okay. It's part of the journey. Get yourself another one. And I'll tell you, if you go to the thrift store, you're going to find a whole lot of those. Oh, the next thing is a sleeping bag. Just as a survival thing, make sure you have a decent sleeping bag. For those nights when everything goes wrong, you at least have a sleeping bag that's going to keep you warm for the night. You don't have to spend $400 on a sleeping bag. Somewhere in the $50 to $75 range is going to get you a really good sleeping bag that's going to accomplish most of your needs. The higher price sleeping bags tend to just be getting lighter. It's not that they're making you warmer, they're just getting lighter. And that's less of a concern if you're in a van than if you're like hiking Mount Olympus or something. And the last thing is bedding. And it's obviously related to sleeping bags, but I've said over and over again, I will continue to say it, the most important thing you're going to do in your van is sleep, unless you're using your van for something else. But if you're sleeping in your van, focus on that, because that's going to be the most misery-making thing, is if you can't sleep. So buy decent sheets, buy the decent sleeping bag, Add some more foam to your mattress. Don't try to get the cheapest possible mattress. Get something comfortable. You will never regret that decision if you spend more money on your mattress. That is a promise I make to you. And, well, I do break promises from time to time. Okay, I've just made you spend all this money on this stuff. What can you save money on? Well, the first one, and this is controversial, all of this stuff is controversial, is the cheap Chinese diesel heater. 
I have installed a cheap Chinese diesel heater now, and I actually found one in the scamp I just bought. It's it's a wreck. I don't think it was ever installed properly, but I, I have two now. Yeah, folks, these things are 100 to $200, 150 bucks. The one I bought was 130 uh, from Vivor, and it's pretty good. It's not as good as an Eberspatcher, but it's one-tenth the cost, and we're into that value proposition here thing again. I say get the cheap Chinese diesel heater. Heck, get two. <laughs> I mean, if something goes wrong, you can just replace whatever's broken with the new one. I, I don't understand spending $1,300 for a really expensive heater, unless you are going to be living full-time in winter conditions. If you're going to spend six months below freezing in your van, then yeah, suddenly heat is super important, and it is worth the money for you to spend on the quote-unquote better diesel heater. But as to how better they are, well, I've never owned one. I can tell you they look nicer, they have a nicer finish, they look better built, they have a nicer controller, but they also break a lot. I see lots and lots of reports of the nice expensive ones breaking as well. So, diesel heaters, yeah, I would go Chinese diesel heater. The other thing is a stove. Gas One makes a butane propane stove that's just brilliant. I mean, it just works. It's like 20 to $30, depending... It has an auto-ignite, you turn it on, it works, it produces lots of heat, you can adjust it very well. I mean, I don't know why you would spend more than that on a stove, honestly. Now, I did. I, I spent $150 on a built-in cooktop in my ambulance. It has two burners, a high output and a low output. It has a D-cell battery that provides the spark. It's very, very nice. But I see that as a luxury item. If I were trying to save every last dollar, that is absolutely not essential. Plus, it takes up counter space. Another thing you can save money on, and this is a surprising one for some, is solar panels. I have seen a whole bunch of different solar panels now, and I can't tell the difference between the cheap ones and the expensive ones. I mean, there are some differences, and you can watch Will Prowse tear them apart, like, oh, they use better epoxy here, and this is thicker... In the end, it doesn't really matter. They all just kind of work, and the tolerances are not that different. So for me, I was able to find affordable solar panels for $100 or so, basically a buck a watt. So a 100-watt panel for $100. And they have all worked perfectly, and I've never had a problem. So I would say get the cheapest solar panels you can, so long as they're comparable. And the last thing that you can be cheap on, and I stand by this, is refrigerators. You do not need to buy a name brand refrigerator. You can buy a Kori, or an Alpacool, or a Set Power, or there's endless ones. And uh, any of the, say, two to $400 refrigerators, well, they all seem to work. They're not Danfoss compressors. It doesn't matter. They work. They sip power, they're actually just fine. So don't feel like you have to spend $900, or $1,000 on a refrigerator. You can get away with a cheaper refrigerator, but not too cheap. You don't want to get one of the Peltier device ones that are usually called coolers. Don't spend less than $100 on one. All those ones that are less than $100 are bad. They draw an incredible amount of current, they have no thermostats, and they won't cool your food enough. They're meant for, like, keeping your soda warm while you're driving, and that's it. So stay away from those. Anyway, those are just my thoughts. I would love to hear your thoughts, and you can get a hold of me once again at jeff at builtogo.com. That's two threes. Two threes. That's two Ts, not three, not one. Tech Talk. 
So I'm working on my scamp and the previous owner or perhaps the previous previous owner has kind of removed all the electrical stuff. I don't really know the history of this thing. Uh, I know that it was kind of an emergency sale and I wasn't able to talk to the actual owner. I bought it through a third party. It's all fine. And they warned me that the electrical was, uh, it needed some work, let's say. And uh, yeah, I, I honestly, there isn't any electrical. I mean, there is no battery. There is a converter. When I plug it in, nothing 12 volts comes on. Only the AC comes on. So I have to rewire it. Not a big deal. Scamps are simple. I can certainly rewire it. It's less hard than rewiring a whole van to start with, and I've done that. But here's my situation. I'm going to put a 200 amp hour battery in the Scamp, which is a pretty sizable battery for a Scamp. I am going to make it so that that battery can be charged via solar, and I haven't decided whether I'm going to permanently mount solar or just bring solar with me. We'll see how that goes. But what do you do when you're plugged into shore power with your battery? Now, traditionally in RVs, they have a thing called a converter. And this is where terminology gets very confusing. A converter converter takes 110 volts AC and converts it to 12 volts DC. So basically, it's powering all your 12 volt stuff without bothering your battery. The better ones, the ones of recent years, will also charge your battery. And that's two separate functions. They're often found in the same box, and those are called converter chargers, but not always. And then there is the inverter, which inverts 12 volts into 110 volts. And that's not the inversion part. The inversion is inverting DC into AC because the current needs to be inverted, thus making it alternating, thus making it AC. We don't have to get too complicated, but know that there's a difference between a converter, charger, and an inverter. For me, I want to be able to use my 12 volt stuff when I'm plugged in without impacting the battery. And well, there's two different approaches to this. One is that you use a converter and have the converter power your 12 volt devices. And then, you know, it would be nice to be able to charge your battery at the same time. So you could have that built in, or you could simply just have another charger that plugs into the 110 and it charges your battery. Now I've got lithium. I'm going to get a charger that works with lithium batteries. It has to be multi-stage. That's fine. I know about that. But then I'm thinking, why do I need to have the charger in the converter? Why, why don't I just have the charger separate? And then I thought, why do I need the converter at all? If I plug into 110 volts, all the 12 volt stuff can still run off the battery. And if I'm charging it at the same time it's being used, it's exactly the same as if I were boondocking and the sun was shining. It ends up being the same thing. Now, you could argue, oh, you're putting more wear on the battery that way or something like that, but this is a scamp. This isn't a huge fancy RV. I think that for 50 bucks, if I just buy a regular lithium charger, that's going to solve all my problems regarding 12 volts and 110 volts. So I'll let you know how that goes, but that's my thought right now. This is not how RVs are done. If you buy an actual RV from an actual RV company, it will have an, a converter charger that will convert to 12 volts and charge your battery, and a fancy one will also have the inverter combined in all that. I think I'd rather have all the things separate. So I hope I didn't confuse you more, but I'm going to say it one more time. Converters take 110 volts shore power and turn it into 12 volts. Chargers charge your battery with 110 volts. And an inverter 
takes 12 volts from your battery of DC and converts it to 110 volts AC, so your normal plugs will run off the battery. Confusing? Eh, a little bit, but it's a lot less confusing if you have three different devices instead of just one, and I think that's the direction I'm going to go in. Tales from the Road so last week I told you about my van and how it blew up on the side of the road and was at the Mercedes dealer and blah, 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 blah. And here we are $2,600 later and I got my van back and it uh, instantly threw a check engine light at me. So I drove the van away, everything was fine, and then the next day I started it up and the glow plug light came on. Now on a diesel engine, the glow plugs are basically there just to help the engine start. They produce heat, and that helps the diesel ignite, which makes the whole thing work. Compression is actually what's doing the work, but the glow plug helps when it's really cold. And you have one in each cylinder, and honestly, old diesels didn't even have them, so they're not essential. But I want my glow plug to work. <laughs> I sure don't want that check engine light on. And so I did the code scanner thing and found out that glow plug number three, which is in the back of the engine on the passenger side in a Sprinter, was basically dead. Now, I had just replaced all these glow plugs in January, and they last a lot longer than that. So I was like, what's going on? So I, I took it back to the Mercedes dealer and gave them a sob story, and they started off with like, well, we can get you in in two weeks. And then I played this little game where I said, hey, tell you what, I really need to plan my time carefully here. What if I just brought it in for a very quick diagnosis? You don't have to do any work. You'll just tell me what's wrong, and then we can schedule time to fix it. And they agreed to that, which was great. And so I brought it in, and they jumped on it immediately and pulled out the glow plug and showed it to me, and it was green. And it was green because there was coolant on it. Now, those of you who know about engines at this point are going, oh, no, because having coolant there is a very bad thing. It usually means there's a broken head or at least a gasket, but basically antifreeze is mixing in with the parts of the engine it shouldn't, and depending on how bad it is, it could mean an entire new engine. But I noticed something right away, which was that the part of the glow plug that was green was above the thread. That means that the antifreeze was getting into the glow plug, not from the engine, but from outside the engine. This is very strange. It's as if someone had poured antifreeze on top of the engine. So the timing of this is that Mercedes just worked on my van. This problem happened immediately after they were done. They must have screwed it up. I'm thinking, did they add antifreeze and spill it on the engine? I mean, what, what's going on here? And how did antifreeze actually destroy this anyway? Well, it turns out that I have a leak, and it is in an aftermarket part. Being an ambulance, this thing has heat in the back, so engine heat. So I can get very toasty back there while I'm driving. And the way you get engine heat in the back of a van is you run antifreeze to a heater core that's in the back of the van. And to do that, you have to basically tee off of an existing coolant line and send it to the back. And one of those tees is leaking, and it's leaking directly over the number three glow plug. So what we have here is a coincidence. Mercedes didn't do this. They did not cause this problem. And the only reason I can think that it may have happened right at this point is that I had the van towed. And it was not on a flatbed, it was towed by a regular tow truck, so the front of the van was in the air, and I think the antifreeze drip from that 
went right to that rear glow plug and enough of it got in past the boot that it caused the glow plug to fail. I think. I don't know. It's very strange. I can't really blame this on anything other than just dumb luck. But here I am, second week in a row, doing a podcast without my van. Lesson here is do not freak out at your service advisor just because things correlate. Correlation and causation are often related, but they're not always related, and they weren't related in this case. And because I was super nice and understanding to them, they got my van in earlier, and they're actually giving me a discount on the repair. So sometimes you can get more with honey than vinegar, and other times a little vinegar helps too. But this isn't that time product review. So I did something stupid. Um, I went on Amazon and typed in Lagoon Table and bought one. And what's stupid about that is, is that Amazon doesn't sell Lagoon Tables. (laughs) Now, if you don't know what a Lagoon Table is, it's L-A-G-U-N. And it's a very fancy arm. It actually isn't a table. It doesn't come with a tabletop at all. It's this arm that you attach to the wall or a piece of furniture in your van, and it makes a very flexible, lockable tabletop that can spin and move all over the place. All the fancy RVs have this. A lot of people have added them, and they're just the best solution for having a table that you can have in front of you as a desk, or you can raise it up and make it a counter, or push it to the side and make it a nightstand. I'll have a link in the show notes if you don't know what I'm talking about, but these things are great. However, I don't have one, (laughs) because what Amazon does is if you type in a product they don't have, they will just stick in another similar product and not tell you it's not that, and I was too tired to catch it, and I ended up buying the knockoff Lagoon Table Leg. So I saved maybe 40 bucks because again, these things aren't inexpensive. You can spend as much as $200 on one of these just legs. And again, then you got to add a tabletop, which in my case is just an old cabinet door. I got at Menards for five bucks. That works fine. So is it worth buying one of these knockoff things? In general, I would say no, because this is a critical component that is going to drive you crazy if it isn't very good. And for the extra 50 bucks, when you're already spending 150 bucks, spending an extra 50 to get to 200 for something like this, it's probably worth it. And I would have done that if I hadn't screwed up. But I actually ended up installing the knockoff. And you know what? The one I got anyway is fine. The thing totally does everything I want it to. If you ever get a lagoon table or one of the knockoffs, the way you lock it off is weird. The tabletop spins, and there's a locking lever for that. The table goes up and down. There's a locking lever for that. And then the arm itself spins, and there's a locking lever for that. So you have three degrees of motion. But the lever is weird. It's basically a screw, and you've got this big handle that allows you a lot of leverage to put in the screw, but if it needs more than one turn, you have to push the lever in, and it's on a spring, and then twist it backwards, and then let it pop out again, and then tighten it more. It's kind of like a weird ratchet, and it definitely takes some time to get used to that. So if you do buy one of these, and you're frustrated with not being able to lock it, take a moment to see how that thing works. Anyway, I will put a link in the show notes to the one I bought. It is honestly fine. The thing is fine. Uh, I will say that if you are going to buy a knockoff one, definitely get the ones with six holes in the mounting plate 
rather than four because all the weight you put on this thing is going to be on that mounting plate and it is an oblique weight it's a weight with a lot of leverage and it will be very easy to rip out of whatever you attach it to if you don't have it very secure nuts and bolts are recommended i couldn't do that because of where it's installed so i ended up using just really big wood screws and it's been fine so Yes, folks, you can save a little bit of money if you want a lagoon table. I'm not sure it's worth it, but if you want to save it, hey, take a look at what I bought, and so far, it's working great for me. A place to visit. I have not done this place, but I would like to. I have done similar things. And this is the Ice Road of Madeline Island. Now, Lake Superior is the superior of the Great Lakes, or at least it's the biggest. And in the winter, it gets very, very cold, and there's an island up there called Madeline Island that normally has a ferry. But in the winter, it gets so cold, they're like, eh, who needs the ferry? And they just make the road go over the lake, and you can drive across it. It's pretty amazing. They actually use Christmas trees along the sides to dictate where the sides of the road are, <laughs> which tells you when this thing freezes over. It's after Christmas. They're using old <laughs> Christmas trees. Probably end of January, February is when you're going to be able to do this. And you can literally just take your van out there and drive across one of the largest freshwater lakes in the world. And I kind of think that's cool. I have done this on Lake Champlain in Vermont. It is a little bit unnerving, but it's fine. Um, it, sometimes you'll drive and you'll hear this big crack. <laughs> the ice will go, and you're thinking this is bad. But no, that's what ice does. When ice gets really frozen and it ends up being feet thick, pressure forms and it causes these pressure cracks. It's not a big deal. And it's really fun if you know it's not a big deal, but the people you're with don't. Anyway, it's something to do in the winter. It's up in Bayfield, Wisconsin, which is really pretty far north. And uh, I think it might be a nice bucket list thing to actually drive your van on water. And if the ice isn't completely formed, they have this thing called the wind sled, which is like a big airboat. And you can ride on that. And if the ice disappears a little bit and it becomes water, eh, it doesn't matter. This thing doesn't care. They actually call it a water taxi. So if you do get up there, you'll at least have something fun to do. Resource recommendation. Yes, oh, we're getting to that winter point. Yep, we are, and I'm excited about it. But if you're going to go out to Colorado or some of the other really mountainous places to maybe do some skiing, you might encounter roads that require chains. And you had best have chains, and you should know how to put them on. And, well, if you're not familiar with chains, how do you learn about this stuff? Well, I have a resource for you. It's from eTrailer.com. And it basically explains how chains work, what different kinds of chains there are, and what's the right chain for your vehicle. And what I can recommend is that after you go through this chart and you buy the right chains, then you go on YouTube and watch a bunch of videos on how to put them on. It's generally not that hard. You basically lay the chains down in the snow and then you drive on them and then you wrap the chains around the wheels and tighten them up. And then you drive a little bit and stop and tighten them up again. It's a little tedious. It can be super uncomfortable if it's really cold out and it's something you should do many, many times before you actually need to. But to get started in that whole process, I think this eTrailer.com article is pretty good. The URL is very long. I'll say it, but it's better to go to the link. It's eTrailer.com, FAQ hyphen snow hyphen tire hyphen chain hyphen comparison dot ASPX. Guess there are still people that use active server pages. I don't know why. 
Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 143. I absolutely appreciate it, and I seriously do want to hear from you about what you want me to do about these Antarctica episodes. Again, that's jeff at builtago.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Antoinette Van Cleef. When snow falls, nature listens.